Good morning. Wasn't that a fantastic meeting time? Goodness. You all got to know each other and Eric could barely get you seated. You were super excited. Hey, I want to just give all the newcomers a church hack. This is something that I realized. Over here on the front row is the batting box. That's where Eric, Johnny, and I were all at. So if you really want to meet one of the ministry staff as a newcomer, second row it. Yeah, or this whole row, nobody wants to be hit by the spit, but it's always open. So, and that's pretty close. I'm Joey Cochran. I'm the pastor of Connection and Communication here at Calvary. And I have been a disciple of all sorts of stuff all throughout my life. From my earliest days, I had my favorite discipler, Davy Crockett. I ran around the house with my Davy Crockett hat, had a leather vest, had a little satchel to keep all of my frontier stuff in. You know, I watched the Disney adventures where he like wrestled with Mike Fink and the Battle of the Alamo. I used to sit as a kindergartner and a first grader and watch the John Wayne, like, three-hour-plus-long version of the Battle of the Alamo over and over and over again. And I was such a confident, devout follower of Davy Crockett, I told my mom, and I quote, I just know they're going to win the Battle of the Alamo this time. <laughs> Not even kidding. So, not only was I a devout follower of Davy Crockett, I was a future Jedi in the making. I inhabited the entire cosmos of Star Wars. I wanted to be a little Jedi on adventures with Luke and Leia and Han. I ran around the house with a lightsaber, fighting off the dark forces that were in my midst. And I inhabited other worlds that I was discipled into. I inhabited all of these worlds because of these modern myths that were given to me. Modern myths like the adventures of Winnie the Pooh, where I could accompany Christopher Robin into the 100-acre woods with Tigger and with Rue, who were my two favorites, and Piglet and Rabbit and all of the others. I inhabited the world of Peter Pan, and I went off into Neverland to hang out with all the rest of the lost boys. These modern myths were great diversions for me. And they became part of an important canon of modern discipleship. And as I grew older, I started to discover that this canon was a little bit bigger than just these childhood adventures that I would go on. I would enter into the canon of Google to disciple me. I would access my phone and I would be like, Google, what will you teach me today? I have so many questions for you, oh Google. Show me your ways. YouTube, I don't know how to do this, but I'm sure you have a video for me to show me how to do it. And so I added YouTube to my little canon of understanding how to inhabit the world that I was in. Others like Pinterest, I, I don't actually, like I'm, I have a Pinterest account because I'm a creative person. I don't access it a whole lot. Um, I say that because I feel like Pinterest is more of a girl thing and guy thing. <laughs> so I really shouldn't apologize for it anymore. I think I know a lot of dudes on Pinterest. You know, I find out about fashion and 
all sorts of cool things that I'm interested in through it. And so it is super helpful. But I might also go to the canon of Facebook so that I can cue all of my friends and poll them and be like, how should I do this? And just last night, Kendall and I got onto Facebook because we were looking for good Mexican food because Uncle Julio's had a two-hour reservation wait time. And I was like, I'm not going to Uncle Julio it tonight. We're going to find someplace else. So Berlin has this place called Los Corrales. Super good. You should check it out. So you're welcome, Los Corrales. Anyway, but I added all of these other mediums, all of these other parts of my canon for discipleship because I had certain desires that I wanted to get met. And I know for you, you have different worlds that you inhabit that disciple you in different ways. You have different modern myths that you encounter, whether it's the world of Marvel or if it's a reality TV show that you love, or maybe it's a podcast that helps you get ahead in life. There's possibly a TED Talk or an NPR podcast that you listen to. Maybe you're interested in real estate speculation. Maybe you're interested in investing. And so you have podcasts that you listen to that equip you so that you can fulfill those modern desires that you have. Today, we're going to look in Matthew 8. And as we look at Matthew 8, we're going to look at what true, lasting, great discipleship looks like. And that discipleship is the kind of discipleship that doesn't just divert our attention from the dread of death that's coming up in our life and distract us with these different interests that we have until those last days, but the kind of discipleship that we're going to turn to is the kind of discipleship that comes from Jesus Christ. And that kind of discipleship, which is built on an ancient myth, which C.S. Lewis calls the one true and real myth, and is developed from this ancient canon of the Holy Scriptures, fulfills our deepest desire. And that deepest desire isn't to be distracted until our death, but it's to be able to pass through death into new life. And so as we explore this passage of chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, we're going to inhabit this ancient world and we're going to discover what Jesus' offer of discipleship looks like. And that offer has particular demands upon our life. So go ahead and look at verse 18 with me. And I'm going to go ahead and set the context real briefly for you. You see, in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus began his public ministry. And with that public ministry, he started by teaching and giving this great sermon on the mount. And after he came down from that mountain, after he delivered that sermon on the mount, he started performing the teaching that he taught. He didn't just teach people how to live, but he started to live how he taught. And as he lived what he taught, he showed us the authority that he had, and he exercised the power that he had as the one true discipler. He started performing all of these healings, and he healed these people on the land. He healed the leper. He healed the centurion. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And with each one of those times, there's a sense in which we discover his lordship. In fact, when he healed the leper, the leper started by calling him Lord. 
When he healed the centurion's servant, the centurion started by calling him Lord. After Peter's mother-in-law was healed, she immediately started serving him as if he was the Lord. And so we come to this part of the text and we get the picture of what it costs to follow Jesus, what the demands are upon our life. And so right here, you have a scribe approach Jesus, and Jesus has just said he's going to give orders for everybody to go over to the other side. This huge crowd has gathered around him, and he says, you know what? It's time to go on a daring adventure in our own little world. All of you folk who live around the Sea of Galilee, you've probably never been across on the other side of the sea. You've never crossed Tiberius's lake and been over in the Decapolis where all of the Gentiles live. You've never been among the Gandarines. Let's go and check that place out. And a scribe comes up to him, and, and let's just think a little bit about what a scribe is. A scribe is basically an ancient secretary a person who takes down the records of what great men have said. And when this scribe comes to him and he says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, he's committed to ride on the coattails of Jesus' success. In fact, he may have heard the Sermon on the Mount and he was like, you know what, this is really good stuff. I better start taking this down. And then when he started seeing Jesus heal all these people, he was like, whoa, this dude is not just a good talker. He's not just a great teacher. There's something significant going on here. And Jesus reminds this man who he is, that he is the son of man, and he doesn't have a home upon this earth. Because the scribe would have really liked being in the home of a guy who's this successful. Probably would have been a great place to be, take down a lot of stuff, eat great fruits and vegetables, be catered by other servants, because that's the kind of life that people with power and authority have. But Jesus reminds this guy that he's the son of man. And just like every single son of man after the fall, he is but tabernacling here upon this earth. This is not his home, this land that he lives in here. It's not his permanent dwelling place. He's just like all of us, sojourning, trying to find our way. But he doesn't have a hole to run to just like a fox does. He doesn't have a nest for a bird to go to. And it's not just that a fox has a hole for a home and a bird has a nest for a home, but those are places of safety and refuge. When a larger predator is coming, a fox can scurry into his hole and protect himself. If there's a predator on the ground going after a bird that's foraging, that bird can just fly up into the nest. Jesus is telling this guy, I go on daring adventures, and they're not always safe. I'm not a safe person to be around. But as with Aslan, I am a good person to be around. And so this scribe picks up on that, and he decides not to go with Jesus now, another comes to him, and this one is called a disciple. And the disciple says to him, Jesus, Lord. So this person recognized him as somebody who has authority and has power. Lord, only let me bury my father, and then I'll come and follow you. Well, Jesus reminds this disciple 
who this person is. You are a disciple. What is the identity and function of a disciple? A disciple looks to a leader and follows him. A disciple doesn't bury the dead. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead because that's the identity of the dead, is to do that. Go ahead and allow the damned to bury the dead. But the devout, they need to follow me. And so he then draws a line in the sand and he tells all of the people there in the crowd, if you're my disciples, let's get in the boats. Let's cross over to the other side. And he says that. And in verse 23, it says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. You see, the demand on our discipleship is to follow in the duty of following the discipler. We need to fulfill that duty and we need to go immediately. We need to go on a daring adventure with him. And so they start to cross over. And the disciples that do come with Jesus, they're met with a surprise on the sea. They discover that it's truly not always safe to be with the true discipler. There are dangers that are there. And so out there on the open water, which most of them as fishermen, they've probably always hugged the shore. And if they went over to the Decapolis, they probably just went along the shoreline to get over there. They didn't just cross over in the open waters because they know how turbulent and tumultuous they can be. And so there they are, caught on the open sea. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the belly of the boat. You can't see this story of Jesus calming the waters without rethinking about the story of Jonah. But this is a different sort of Jonah. Jesus is the Jonah who wakes up and he doesn't say, don't sacrifice. He doesn't say, sacrifice me. No, he doesn't because that, has, that time hasn't come yet for Jesus. No, Jesus awakes from his sleep and he puts the sea to sleep. And the sea immediately calms by his word. And so do the winds calm. And John Chrysostom says this about Jesus when he calms the sea. He says, his sleeping showed that he was a man. His calming of the seas declared him to be God. And when these disciples saw who this discipler is, they responded with devotion. They marveled at who he is. And in fact, if you look at this last verse here in 27 in this little pericope, which is a small section of scripture, it says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort is this that even winds and sea obey him? Because you see, if you're looking on in your Bible, in the New Testament Greek, it doesn't actually say man. It just says, what sort is this? And I think that's because the disciples are even beginning to wonder, is this guy actually a man? Or is he something so much more than that? He has the power to heal people on the land. He has power to calm the very deeps that we're riding on. Who is this person that we are encountering? Well, we're encountering somebody who is both the son of man and he's the son of God. 
And that's what we discover in the next section. You see, Jesus gets out of the boat and he gets onto the dry land again when he is approached by these two ganderines. And these two demon-possessed men confront him and they say to him, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, Jesus doesn't just have the power to heal on land. He doesn't just have power to calm the deeps, but he holds the very keys to hell. And he has the power to bind the spiritual forces that are in the, his midst. And this legion of demons know his power. And so they beg him. They say, hey, if you are going to exercise us, put us in those pigs. Why? Because they want to do nothing more than to dispossess and to destroy other people's goods. And Jesus wants nothing more than to do good for other people. And so he dispossesses these men who are under oppression and he disarms the spiritual forces because that's the kind of thing that true discipleship does. It has the power to disarm and dispossess the spiritual forces that are in our midst. And so the demons leave these two men and they go into this herd of pigs that hurtle over the edge of a cliff into the deep water and they drown to their deaths. And the herdsmen go on into the city and the entire crowd and entire multitude come out to Jesus. And what happens? You see, on the other side of the lake, when a crowd and a multitude came to Jesus, they came to him out of devotion, out of a desire to follow him, out of a desire to be healed. These people come and they beg and they say, I don't want your discipleship. I reject your discipleship. Just like these demon-possessed men had done, the demons reject Jesus. In fact, think about this. This is the first part of the passage where he isn't referred to as Lord because demons don't want to submit to the authority and the power of the true discipler. And so these people ask and beg Jesus to leave. And so Jesus does. He departs and he goes back to his own city. This is the story of one who passes through death. When we think about the whole story that was laid out before us, it's this militant picture of this warrior soldier who gives orders to his people to go on a skirmish, and they cross, and they have a naval navigation across the lake, and he immediately encounters a legion of soldiers, and he dispossesses them and disarms them. And it's a constant journey through death. If you know anything about the ancient world, the sea was a place that wasn't just tumultuous, it wasn't just mysterious, but it was the chaotic place of death. In fact, in mythology, the picture of death was a lake. And Jesus enters into a place of death when he hits the land. He enters into a tomb, and he sees these men who are keeping guard of the city, and he dispossesses them. And it's all a forepicture of what he's going to do. 
There is going to be a time where he is going to enter into Hades and he is going to preach the gospel and the torment of demons will come to an end. They will be thrown into a lake of fire and they will be ultimately consumed. To be with Jesus is safe because to be with Jesus and to be discipled by Jesus passes us through death into new life. What I want to do to end this sermon is to give you seven characteristics of what a disciple looks like. Because I want to challenge you to inhabit this ancient world, to inhabit this ancient canon in your life today, in the modern world that you live in. I want you to see the divine command and the divine demand upon your life to be a true disciple of Jesus. Because here's the thing about who Jesus is. You and I, we're but mere disciples. We're imperfect disciples at best. Jesus was the one and true disciple of his father, the true son of God and the true son of man, fully God and fully human, who had the power not just to be the perfect disciple, but to be the perfect disciple maker and to create men who would have the vision to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. And that's our calling for us today too. So here are these seven characteristics. The first one is for us to be deliberate. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a very deliberate process. It's just like when I was a little kid and I deliberately tick on the image of Davy Crockett and I was very devout to everything that Davy Crockett did. It was a very deliberate process. Me logging into a podcast and listening in on how to become a great historian, because I love history, is all part of the deliberate process of my discipleship. For us, we need to go to God's word. We need to be very deliberate in learning from this ancient canon to learn from the true discipler in the process of discipleship. Another characteristic of us is discipleship is specific. In other words, you are called to a specific place and you are called to a specific ministry. If you are an attender at Calvary Memorial Church, if you are a member here, you have a very specific calling to the people around you. These people here in your midst, the older women should be mentoring the younger women here. The older men should be mentoring the younger men here. And I love podcasts, and I like hearing from a bunch of different pastors, but there is no better discipler for me than Todd Wilson and Gerald Heastan, and Johnny Cummings, and Eric Redman. Those pastors are my disciplers, and I go to them as the primary source because I'm put in this specific place. You need to reflect on what is your specific call to discipleship? Who are the people that God has put in proximity to you? Who are the people that you can bring the truth of Jesus Christ to? And you need to be intentional to do that. Discipleship is also an exercise of authority. You, if you are an heir of Jesus Christ, if you are a son and daughter of the king, you have been given specific authority. 
The keys of the kingdom have been passed on to his people, the church. And we have the authority and the power to do daring things, to be adventurous. And all of that is part of our doxological purpose. It's part of our devotion to Jesus Christ, which is the next one. It's not just that we are exercising authority, but we are bringing glory to God by what we do as we disciple. And that's the chief aim of what we do. It's not to be a scribe who's trying to gain success and ride on the coattails of somebody else who is great. Our goal is to make Jesus's name great before all others. It's to bring glory to him. So discipleship needs to be doxological. Discipleship is fundamentally evangelical. We need to have the boldness to not just go on daring adventures, but as we go on daring adventures, we need to declare Jesus as Lord, just as the leper did, just as the centurion did, just as the scared out of their minds disciples did on the Sea of Galilee. We need to turn to Christ, declare him as Lord, and declare him as Lord to other people. Because discipleship is evangelical. And here's the last one. And I saved this last one for last because it's a tricky one. It's called Christ-iconic. Discipleship needs to be Christ-iconic. What that means is that we need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Icon, image. Christ, Christ, that one's pretty obvious. We need to be conformed to who he is. So all of our cues of discipleship need to be picked up, not from great people that we love to hear on podcasts or people that we see as great celebrities or heroes of our own. Our chief hero in our faith is Jesus Christ alone. He's the only true discipler that can get us to pass from death into new life. He is the only discipler that has the power to give us power and to delegate that power to us so that we can do his work for his purposes and for his glory. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And so for us as disciples of the true discipler, We have to be people who are willing to be daring, to devote ourselves, even in the unsafe situations, to go on the adventure and be a disciple that's willing to follow the Savior through death into new life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you and we worship you. You sent the true discipler and the truest disciple to ever live. And we confess to you that we are but imperfect disciples, but we are disciples nonetheless who wish to follow on the daring adventures that Christ has for us. Oh God, would you protect us from a siege mentality where we want to flee into our holes and up into our nests and build these monastic communities. We're called to go out on mission for Christ. 
We're called to expose ourselves to be vulnerable. We're called to be adventurous. And in that process, we have a huge opportunity to devote ourselves to the Lord. God, if there's anybody in here today that wishes to delay their discipleship in any way, I ask you, Lord, to penetrate their heart, to convict them so that their desire would be to fall into the duty of discipleship, that they would want to lock arms with fellow Christians, dispossessing and disarming the spiritual forces that are in our midst and inhabiting this ancient world with this ancient canon to fulfill these ancient desires that become real today in the modern world that we live in. Lord, we give thanks to you for your word. We give thanks to you for our Savior. And we give thanks to you that you've made us your disciples. Help us, O Lord, to continue in the discipleship that we've done. Lord, we should be encouraged here at Calvary because we have so many people who go on adventures for Jesus. People who are going to Greece, God, we pray for them as they help refugees. People who are willing to move from a safe and secure place to perhaps a risky, more dangerous place here in Chicago. Lord, we have disciples here that feel called to be sent out and to go on mission for Christ. Maybe they're being moved to a different city or to a different place, but they're following Christ there nonetheless. We have disciples here that are involved with Awana, that are involved with 931, that are involved with the students here at our church, and they are being deliberate and specific in their discipleship ministry. They are exercising their authority, and they are falling into the image of Christ for the glory of God. I pray for all of those people that you would continue to affirm them in their ministry and that you would call more of us into that daring adventure. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.